For the 16th and final time in this series, would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's been a really fun series for me. I've enjoyed it. Um, it's always fun working through a book of the Bible, and when you get to the end, it's very bittersweet, at least for me, because I've enjoyed this book so much. It's been so rich. There's so much we've not even touched on in it, and yet there's plenty of other um, grand vistas of God's glory and other books and other places that we can go. So we're going to finish up in First Peter this week and move on to something else next week. But before we leave it behind, I want to savor one last time the message that God has for us in this book. You know, one of the things that the Bible does, uh, and that this book has done for us, uh, is that the Bible relentlessly challenges our self-centeredness. That's one of the reasons why it's hard for people to read, uh, because it's a mirror and it shows us just how proud and how self-centered and how self-reliant we are. Um, you know, when we have troubles in life, like ones we've already talked about today or ones that, that you've got, that you've brought with us. Um, when we have troubles, we, we tend to turn to either ourselves or things that encourage us to turn to ourselves. Uh, we'll look at magazines or uh, talk shows. Uh, we'll talk to our friends. We'll even Google it. and We'll say, how do I fix this problem? And you often get answers that tell you what you can do to fix the problem. And you're very excited when you get those answers because you think, oh, I can do this now. I have the 10 steps to a healthier marriage. I've got the five steps to getting my finances in order. Um, or I've got the things that I can do um, to find the right spouse or to find the right job or to build my career. And you go away thinking that you've accomplished something because now you can do it. That's just how we operate. We don't even recognize that's our mode of operation. But we're always looking for answers as to what can I do because we're self-centered. We're self-reliant. Uh, but the Bible... And First Peter reminds us that you can't do it. Uh, that life isn't about you. It's not, it's not something that you can manage on your own. When you read through First Peter, you don't get a list of steps as to here is what you can do to get uh, better, to even to be successful in the Christian life. No, it's not about what you can do. The Bible is thoroughly God-centered. And so as we end the book of First Peter, we get three closing uh, exhortations from Peter that all basically amount to the same thing. He says, rely on God. The, the three things that he says at the very end here, he says, um, you know, you need to humble yourself, you need to resist the devil, and you need to stand in grace. So Peter says at the end of chapter 5, that's what we'll read now, and then I'll explain what I mean when I say those things. We're going to start in chapter 5, the second half of verse 5. You can follow along as I read aloud. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, the faithful brother, I have regarded as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. 
Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, Peter begins this section by challenging our self-centeredness. Contrary to the message we get all the time, you don't need more self-esteem. You don't need to think more highly of yourself. What you need is to humble yourself in pursuit of grace. He says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Again in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now what is the humility that he's talking about? Sometimes we get off track with humility and we think humility must mean that you think that you're a horrible, horrible person and that you have to keep telling everybody how bad you are. A truly humble person is someone who, who can never take a compliment. Uh, no, humility is simply having a right view of yourself. It's just being honest about yourself. Uh, Romans 12.3 uh, says as much. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12.3, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. He doesn't use the word humility there, but that's a description of humility. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Pride is thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. Humility is just thinking rightly about yourself, thinking honestly about yourself. Uh, Last week, we applied this to personal relationships. In a church, humility is essential so that we don't think more highly than ourselves, of ourselves than we ought to, and so we can get along together. Uh, but here in verse 6, the shift is more towards thinking of, humi- of ourselves with humility with respect to God, which is even more challenging. Verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Uh, see, what we really need is an honest view of ourselves, not in comparison to one another, because you can still kind of come off looking good in that case. But he says, you need to be truly humble, that is, have a a right view of yourself with respect to God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. We all need to get it in our brains that God is God, and we are not. That God is the center of everything. He is the ultimate. We are not. That the universe exists because of him, not because of us. That he is perfect and holy, and we fall far short of his standards. That's what we need to get in our brains. That is humility, an honest view of ourselves with respect to God. Now, why would we do that? Why should we be humble? Because that's a very uncomfortable thing, isn't it? Much more comfortable to think of ourselves as pretty good, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's our natural state. Why would we dare to do the hard work of being humble? He gives us the answers in verses 5 and 6. He says you should be humble because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You should be humble because God um, exalts at the proper time those who are humble. You should be humble because that's how you get God. God is against you if you're proud. If you want to be opposed by God, well, okay, go ahead and be proud. But if you want to be blessed by God, the recipe for that is humility. See, this is a huge biblical theme. If you read the Bible, you see this written on every page. Just think of your classical biblical stories, like David and Goliath, right? David is a humble shepherd boy. He's not even, it's not like he's trying to think lowly of himself. He's just a shepherd boy. He goes there. What's the song say? Five five little stones he took, and the one little stone went up in the air, and and sling went round and round, and and, and he, he just had five stones. This little guy, little shepherd with a slingshot, against a trained warrior, a giant who is boasting, what are you, uh, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? 
And David says, it's not about me. The battle's the Lord's. He can do it. He flings the stone. He kills the giant. Okay. Think about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus is a story of humility leading to exaltation. The whole trajectory of his life, it looks like it's going down. He gets arrested. He gets beaten. He gets crucified. He dies. But in the end, God exalts him, raises him from the dead, lifts him, and gives him a name above every other name. You see this written in the epistles. You see this written in, the, in Psalms. You see it written in the prophets. It's everywhere in the Bible. I read it in the, in the psalm this morning for our, our call to worship. Um, one, one verse in particular I'd like to draw your attention to is in Isaiah 57. Have you, Isaiah 57, verse 15. The prophet says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See what he's saying there? He says, God's declaring, I, I dwell in the high and holy place. Of course he does. He's God. He's, he's lofty. He's, he's far above all of us. And, and our natural response in religion, wh whether you profess to follow this God or some other God or you just have an, a religious ideal that you try to attain, the way the world works, you say, there's this ideal or God we're trying to get to. It's high and lofty. We're not there yet. So what do we have to do? We better climb and work hard and try to get up to that ideal. You know, if it's, if it's a religion, you say, well, I need to perform the religious duties. I've got to, um, I've got to do the, the rituals. I've got to give money. I've got to do good works. And you think, if I just do those things, then I will somehow attain to the high and lofty God that is up there. He's, he's clearly far away from us. If I will just work harder, I can climb the ladder and I can get to him. But God says, that's not how you do it. He says, I dwell in the high and lofty place and with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. See, every other religion and every other non-religion that's based on that performance mindset, saying, I've got to be good, I've got to work hard and improve myself and get to God, every other religion cannot admit failure. Humility is the enemy. Repentance is the enemy because what you're doing there is you're, you're, you're sliding back down the ladder. It's like shoots and ladders. You've made it up this far, and then, oh, you hit the slide, and you're all the way back down. And you can't get to the end. You can't get to God because, oh, I failed again. You can't admit failure. But in Christianity, that's the key. That's the heart of it. The way up is down. The way you get to God, the way you get his grace is by admitting that you have screwed up by admitting that you can't ever get there, by letting go of the ladder and saying, my only chance at getting to you, God, because you are so high and lofty, my only chance is if you come down to where I am in the dregs, the lowly, the contrited spirit, and just say, would you please help me? I have nothing on my own. Would you save me? That's when God delights to come and to save his people. When you repent of the pride, the pride that's really a competition with God, so question number three, why does God oppose the proud? It's because when you're proud, you're competing with God. God delights to be the hero. He delights to be the savior. He delights to be the one who comes in and rescues you. And when you are uh, can, um, insistent upon uh, proving yourself, 
when you're insistent upon climbing the ladder and somehow meriting your way into his favor, you're competing against him. He wants to be the one who comes in and with undeserved favor showers acceptance upon you and he gets the glory because he loves you so much you've done nothing to earn it. But when you're proud, you're resisting that. You're saying, no thanks, I'll take care of this myself. At least I'll get halfway and then you can come in with a measure of grace. He says, no, I want to give you a full measure of grace. Humble yourself. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18 about a proud man and a humble man. Luke 18, verse 9, he says, Two men were, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, here's the moral of the story. I tell you, this man, the second man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, now what's the key difference between these two men? What, what is the key difference? The key difference is that the first guy was too full of himself to get filled by God. He was too full of himself. Look at him trying to climb the ladder, trying to get to the... He thinks he's gotten to the God who dwells in a high and lofty place. He's, look, look at me. God, thank you. I'm not like other men. I, I fast twice a week. I tithe from everything I get. I'm so good. The other guy, he's empty enough. He's empty enough for God to fill him. He says, God, I've got nothing. The only qualification I bring to the table is that I'm a sinner. And I just ask you to be merciful to me. See, that's how you get God. When Peter says, God, in due time, exalts those who humble themselves, he's saying what God does is he's high and lofty. You cannot get to him. There's no way that you can be get to God on your own. The trick is humble yourself, admit that you can't do it, and then God comes in. He swoops down to where you are, and he picks you up and takes you to himself. He exalts you so that you, as a Christian, actually have God, the Holy Spirit, living in you. The God who dwells in the high and lofty place is also with those who are lowly and of contrite spirit, those who've repented of their sins, those who've repented of their good works, those who've repented of their pride and everything that you would do on your own to get to God and say, I cannot do this. I need your mercy. And God delights to show grace those who admit their weakness. So the key question, number four there, is how do I humble myself before God? That's how it works. How do I actually do it? The first category of people that I need to speak to in that are non-Christians and pretend Christians. It's really the same thing. Uh, Non-Christians as those who are not Christians, those who don't claim to be Christians, and also those who are pretend Christians, those who might be like that Pharisee, who say, well, I'm a Christian because I go to church, because I'm a good person, um, even because I believe in some sense that the Bible is true. But people who have never humbled themselves, people who have never repented of their sins, who've never really said to God, 
I can't do it on my own. I need your grace. I repent of my bad works and my good works. So for the, those two folks, that's one category. It's those who have not r- truly been saved by God yet. Uh, your job to humble yourself is to go before God and, and say those things, to say, I, I can't do it. Uh, Lord, I repent of all the wrong that I've done. I repent of all the good I've done trying to please you. I admit my inability to save myself. And when you do that, God comes in and he gives you grace. He forgives you and he reconciles you with himself. Now for the Christian, um, remember, 1 Peter is written to Christians. And so really the primary application is for us. It says, what do you do? How do you humble yourself? Well, what he tells us in verse 7 is that we ought to pray. Um, verse 7 really picks up the same thought as verse 6. I know some of you, it comes, looks like a command, but it's a, it's a participle, so it's telling you how you're supposed to humble yourself. Verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's really simple. How do you humble yourself as a Christian? You pray. I mean, you, you understand that prayerlessness is an expression of pride. Not praying is a symptom that you are, in fact, a proud person in need of repentance. Because if you're not praying, it means that functionally you are saying, I can do this on my own. It's just an expression. You're, you're not consciously thinking maybe that, I, that you can do it on your own, but that's what you're saying because you, you don't have that daily crying out independence on God. Prayerfulness is an expression of humility because you know every day that you cannot make it on your own. You cannot do this without God's power, and so you cry out just as a, a reflex because you're overwhelmed with how, how much uh, the, the standards of God are and what life just brings at you. You cannot do it on your own, and so you pray. You get these anxieties coming at you, and instead of saying, oh, I can handle this, you realize I can't dig down deep enough to overcome the problems I'm facing. Lord Jesus, would you take these cares because I know that you care for me. If you want God's mighty hand for you instead of against you, humble yourself and pray. Isn't the gospel beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? That we're not we're not sitting here today saying, Wow, look at all the things that you have to do. Your your life is so messed up. Now here's what you have to do to fix it so that God will accept you. But it's here's what you have to do. You have to admit that you're screwed up. And God will save you. Humble yourself in pursuit of grace. Secondly, Peter says, resist the devil by faith. Verse 8, the devil shows up. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Who's this devil? character that he talks about. Um, he's not a cartoon character. He's not that little red guy on your shoulder telling you to indulge in another piece of chocolate cake. Uh, he's not a person to be trifled with. Now, the devil is a real supernatural person with a mission to destroy you. Uh, typically, we don't think a lot about the devil in our culture, and honestly, I don't think we think much about God either, not in a real sense. We don't think much about the reality of God and his power supernaturally. We just discount the supernatural realm in general. We're very functional materialists. 
Just what can we taste? What can we touch? What, what can we do with our own hands? Uh, but both God and the devil are real. And the devil is powerful, stronger than you are by yourself. And his mission is to destroy you. What's he trying to do? Well, Peter says he's trying to devour you. He's looking for someone to destroy. He's trying to turn you away from God. He's called a lion. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? If you go on a safari, like you're out in the, in the Serengeti and you're riding one of those cars, and there's lions around, what do they tell you? They stay in the car. Why do you stay in the car? Because the lions will eat you if you get out of the car. Lions are dangerous. Lions are not friendly. They do not want you to survive. If you get out of the car, they're going to destroy you. And Peter's saying the devil is like a lion looking for someone to eat. Don't be it. It's kind of a wake-up call for us. I mean, I don't know what dangers that you think about every day or, or what dangers you're planning for, but typically we plan for financial problems. You get your savings account in case financial problems come. Uh, you plan for health problems. So you get your health insurance in case something happens. Um, you plan for your computer to crash, so you back up your hard drive. You, you back up your hard drive, right? No? Okay, we should do that. Uh, because those sorts of things happen. Are you prepared for the devil to attack? Peter says Satan is looking to destroy you. Are you ready for that? Do you know how to resist the attack of the devil? How does the devil try to destroy us? I'm not necessarily talking about Stephen King type stuff. Okay? I'm not necessarily talking about um, horror movie uh, standards of you know this the the, the crazy um, exorcist type stuff. It's I'm not. The Bible doesn't mostly talk about the devil's attacks in those terms. Okay? If we just look at the lessons from 1 Peter, how, how does the devil attack? What attacks has, has Peter mentioned in, in his, his, his letter? He's talked about how the devil attacks through persecution, right? The devil tries to destroy people's faith by, by raising up their old friends who they used to go drinking with who come and harass you and say, what are you doing, you religious nut? Why are you, why are you going this way? You don't really want to believe in Jesus. Come on, follow us. And, and that's how the devil attacks. He comes and brings persecution. He brings suffering in your life. He brings hardship. Read the book of Job. That's the devil's attack against Job. Job is, uh, he loses his family. He loses his health. He loses his, uh, his resources. It's not just crazy horror movie stuff. It's everyday stuff of life. The devil is seeking to destroy you by bringing temptations into your life, by urging you to lust, to gossip, to envy, to be angry. Remember 1 Peter 2.11. The passions of your flesh wage war against your soul. That might seem mundane. You might think, oh, that's not the devil attacking. Yes, it is. That's the danger. That's why Peter has to say the devil is like a roaring lion. You might feel like it's just everyday stuff, but that's how he comes and tries to get you. So you've got to be ready for it. You've got to be able to resist. How do you resist when the devil attacks by presenting a temptation before you? Do you do it in your own strength, self-sufficient American? Do you do it in your own strength? Is that how you do it? Because that's how you get eaten. How do we protect ourselves? Um, I did do a little research on actual lion attacks this week. Uh, and it's interesting uh, they give you two pieces of advice. So this is from real, real lions. I hope you never have to use this advice. But if you're in a situation where there's a real lion there 
and you're out of the car and you uh, are in danger from a lion attack, here's what you do. So the first thing that you do is you hold your ground. You don't run away. If you turn around and run, show your back, the lion thinks, oh, pray, I'm going to go eat that. And you're dead. So don't turn around. Don't run away. Stand your ground. Uh, the second thing that you do is that you get big. So you clap your hands, make a lot of noise, wave, just get big because you want to intimidate the lion. You want to make the lion think that you're bigger than him so he thinks it's not worth his trouble to come and get you. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to be cute, but that is exactly what Peter tells us to do in this passage. When, when the lion attacks, when the devil attacks, the first thing that you do is you hold your ground. That's what he says in verse 9. Resist him. Resist him. Don't say, oh, oh, temptation for covetousness. I'm watching TV. This ad comes on. I'm tempted to covet. I might as well just give in. No, it's too hard to resist. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to covet after that thing. Oh, th oh, oh, this is a great opportunity to gossip. Oh, I could share that thing. Oh, I'm just going to give in. It's too hard to fight. No, when you do that, you're giving in. The devil destroys you. He's eating you. Don't give in. Fight. Resist. Hold your ground. Recognize that there is a battle. The devil is attacking, and you need to resist. How do you resist? Well, you get big. Okay? Get bigger than you. That's what he says in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith. And down in verse 10. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, when the devil attacks, hold your ground and then get big. Not, not in yourself. Not like, oh, devil, I'm bigger than you. No, you're not. If it's just you versus the devil, devil wins. He's stronger than you. But you with God versus the devil, no contest. When you get big, when you go in faith, trusting in God to protect you, the devil recognizes that he's not just fighting you, he's fighting the Holy Spirit, and he cannot defeat the Holy Spirit. It will not be worth his battle, and he will run away. When the line attacks, hold your ground. Resist the devil, James says in James 4, 7, and he will flee from you. Very practically, how do you get big? You get big by believing the promises of God in Scripture. That's how you do this. When the devil attacks you with anxieties, you believe 1 Peter 5, 7, and you say, I'm going to cast all my anxieties on God because he cares for me. When the devil comes in with his lies, because he's a liar, he's a father of lies, when he comes with his lies and he says, God doesn't love you anymore, you say, yes, he does. He told me that in Romans 8. He told me in Romans 8 that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in this world can separate from God's love. You're a liar, devil, I don't believe you. Um, when the devil tells you when you've sinned, you should just cover it up. Just cover it up. You don't want people to know that you're a, a, a screw-up. You, you don't, you, no, cover it up. Don't, don't let people know that you've sinned. You say no. God says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so the proper time he may exalt you. Uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm just going to admit it. I'm just going to be humble and I'm going to trust that God will give me grace when I do that. When the devil says you need to blend in with the crowd, it's not worth it to suffer for doing good, you say no. It's better. 1 Peter 3.17 It's better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. Okay, that's how you get big. You believe the promises of God when the devil attacks. You trust that truth and he cannot compete with the truth of God. His lies cannot stand up to that. That's why Ephesians 6, when it gives the, the story, of, or the, the picture of the armor of God, this fight that we have, not with flesh and blood, but with you versus the devil, 
says the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the one that attacks the devil. The shield of faith is the thing that protects you from every flaming arrow of the evil one. This is why Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, quoted scripture to defeat Satan and his temptations. The obvious implication for all of us is if that's how we fight the devil, then we need to know the scripture. We need to know the word. We need to take it in regularly. We have got to have the promises of God written on our hearts so that we can retaliate and be prepared. This is far more important than backing up your hard drive. The devil will attack you. You need to be ready with scripture. And if in your time of weakness you don't know the scripture, ask somebody. Reach out for help. Say, I feel like I'm being attacked. I feel like I'm being tempted. I don't know how to fight this. Let, let one of your elders or, or one of your godly friends speak into your life with the scriptures and say, here's what God says. Let's believe that together. See, the two main things that Peter has hit on at the end of this letter is the same stuff he's been hitting all along. It's not about you. Okay? You need to humble yourself in pursuit of grace. Stop trying to reach God and just admit that you can't and he will give you grace. You need to resist the devil by faith. Don't try to fight the devil on your own but trust in God and he'll scare him away. And then third, he just summarizes the letter in verse 12 and says, stand in the true grace of God. Verse 12, he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter's just saying, let me recap. I wrote you a short letter. Here's what it is the grace of God. This, this letter that I wrote you, these five chapters, it's an explanation of the grace of God. And what you need to do, now that you've received this, is not go off on your own, do your own thing. What you need to do is, is hold fast to this truth. Hold fast to this truth, this true grace of God. Stand in it. And what is, you know, if you had to summarize the letter, how would you summarize it? I hope by now we all are on the same page with that one. This is a letter from Peter to us telling us that we're resident aliens with a mission. This is the true grace of God. Let's stand in it. Uh, we're aliens. I'm going I'm to throw out a lot of Bible verses here, a lot of references to 1 Peter just so you get the, the, the sense that this is the whole book. If you want a list of these verses later, I'll be happy to give it to you. But here's what Peter says in this book. He says that we are aliens by the grace of God. He says God has made us different. We were just like the world. In 118, he says we were without hope. We, we inherited feudal traditions from our fathers. In, verse four, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, you'd waste your life in a flood of debauchery, but God caused us to be born again to a living hope. 1-3. We were not a people, but God has made us a people. We had not received mercy, but God uh, gave us mercy. Chapter 2, verse 10. We were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus. 1-18 and 19. Jesus took his sins on his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2, 23 and 24. Christ suffered once for sins to bring us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous, 3.18. See, we're aliens. God has done all this stuff for us. He has caused us to be born again. He's made us different. And yet he's left us here as residents. 1.1, he says, you're in Pontus and Galatia. I would extrapolate and say in Metamora and Washington and Peoria. We still live in a world under the government, 2.13, with masters, 2.18, 
Marriages, three, one through seven. Local churches, five, one through five. We're in this world. We're among Gentiles. We can expect opposition from them, four, four. But by God's grace, he's given us the opportunity to be on a mission in this world. Being saved by God, we're no longer to live for ourselves, but for God, chapter four, verse two. We're supposed to be holy as he is holy, one fifteen. We're supposed to put aside slander and malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy, chapter two, verse one. Instead, we're supposed to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds, blessing those who curse us, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. We no longer follow the passions of our sinful desires, chapter 2, verse 11, but instead are zealous to do what is good, chapter 3, verse 13. And as we do this, we'll experience opposition, but we'll also have the opportunity to share the gospel, chapter 3, 15. And as we do that, some people will be born again, by the powerful word of God, just as we ourselves were born anew by the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. That's the true grace of God. We were saved by grace, we remain here by grace, and we've been given a mission by grace. Peter says, stand in that. Don't let that go. One of the reasons why this has been a, a bittersweet sermon to prepare is because First Peter has been so rich. It's been so rich for me, and I think for us too. You know, as, as I talk to folks, uh, I mean, we've been doing this since January. I've, I've been talking to you. I've, we, I've seen things going on. I've seen us believing this grace of God, beginning to live it out. Maybe not even beginning, but just continuing to live it out. Trusting, uh, you know, believing the gospel, that we are saved by grace, and it's so wonderful. And we get filled with that, and we want to share it with other people. And I've talked to folks. You've, you've experienced some opposition in different ways these, these last uh, six months. And you've stood firm under that opposition. You've seen some fruit. Uh, you know, we've had two people in our congregation who've been able to lead someone to Christ over the course of these six months. We've had other folks who've had opportunities, myself included, to share the gospel with people that, you know, six months ago, I might not even have shared the gospel with. We've been encouraged by this, and I want to encourage you as we wrap up this book, don't start to think now that you can do it on your own. Okay? Having begun by the Spirit, don't begin to, to try to finish it with works of the law. Don't get confident. Don't get cocky. Confidence, okay, confident in God. But don't get cocky. Don't get cocky about saying, well, we started. We, we've, we've done this. Let's gonna, we're going to keep on going. I'm going to keep on sharing the gospel with folks. I mean, the power, the power comes from God. We need to humble ourselves, and he'll work through us. And don't get complacent, thinking, well, this is our six-month adventure on mission for God, and now that's over. This is our lifestyle. The rest of our lives should be lived as resident aliens on a mission. I encourage you as one practical application. This afternoon, or sometime this week, just read through the whole book of 1 Peter in one setting. It shouldn't take you that long. Read through it and think about what are some of the things that God has challenged me in this book? What are some of the ways in which he's comforted me? What's one or two verses that I can memorize from this book so that I can begin to internalize God's word, have some strength to resist the devil, and to get some um, motivation to continue to live on mission? I'm very excited for what God has done in our midst. I'm excited for what he's doing. I'm excited to live out this mission of the Christian life with you. And I'm confident that as we continue to rest in God and, and humble ourselves before him, resisting the devil by faith, 
and going forth in mission, we will see people, more people, born again to the same living hope. Let's, let's keep on doing it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that the power comes not from us, but from you. We are nothing and nobody. We have nothing to commend ourselves to the world. We have, we, we, we have so little. I mean, you've, you've blessed us. You've made us who we are, and, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made by your hands, but we have, oh, we've, we have marred your creation through our sin. Uh, we are so weak. God, there's no hope for us apart from you. Please, Lord, continue to humble us day in and day out that we might turn in faith to you and experience more and more of your grace flowing in our lives, in this church. Lord, we look forward to the harvest of the next few years as we step out in mission. Lord, would you grant us a great harvest? Would you grant us people who are born again, rescued from the feudal traditions inherited from their forefathers and brought into the family of God? Oh, it's exciting to be on mission with you, Lord. Would you empower us to continue? In Jesus' name, amen.